Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for this opportunity that you have provided for us to be able to come and open up your word. Lord, I just um, so thank you for the privilege to be able to stand here, to be used in this way. Lord, I pray that as you have spoken to me this week, that you would use me now to speak to those who are here today. Um, Lord, I pray and I know that you've already begun to turn over the fertile soil of our hearts to be able to hear and accept the wisdom of your word, that it might take root in our hearts and produce 1,000-fold. So, Lord, we turn this time over to you. Lord, I pray against distractions. I pray, uh, Lord, that um, this would just be a blessing to you and a blessing to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, here's a thought. Maybe just take this opportunity to just switch that cell phone on over to vibrate. Um, uh, again, it's, it's not that I don't really enjoy all of your very creative ringtones. But maybe you could just share it with me afterwards. <laughs> so we kind of ended last week um, with uh, Jesus and his disciples. You know, they had gone over to the area of the region of the Gadarenes. Um, and there were these demon-possessed men that came and ran out, and they were very fierce and, and cut up and naked. We know from the, the harmony of the Gospels, the story, that they had been chained up, but they were supernaturally breaking their chains, and everybody was afraid. They couldn't even pass by the way that they came. And so Jesus, after, I remember the whole storm situation, um, comes ashore, and these guys come running up to them, uh, up to Jesus, and they immediately recognize Jesus. The demons within these men recognize and know exactly who Jesus is, which I just think is kind of ironic because just a moment ago, his own disciples in the boat were him were just saying, who is this man? And the demons certainly know. They certainly know who he is. Well, Jesus cast them out into the nearby herd of swine. Is it herd for pigs? Herd? Herd? Group? I don't know. I Whatever. And, and, the, and the swine go running off into the, into the water and they're all destroyed. And, and then the people who own the pigs, they all come out to Jesus and, and they say, um, um, could you just go? <laughs> could, you, could you please just leave us alone here? And it really strikes me that these people that came out of the city that saw that their swine had been killed because Jesus had cast demons from these guys into there are more concerned about what they had lost than what they potentially could gain from Jesus Christ. They said, no, you know what? We're, we're, we, we, all we see is that we've lost all this potential income rather than to see what this guy who actually has the power to cast out demons could possibly bring to us. Could you please go? So what does Jesus do? He leaves. He leaves. He doesn't force himself. You know what I also realized? He doesn't, also, he doesn't punish them for rejecting him beyond their own choice. He could have sent them all over the cliff after their precious pigs. He could have said, oh, you want to be with your pigs so much? He could have sent them right all off the cliff. 
but he didn't. See, the choice to accept him or reject him was theirs, as it has always been and still is. We are all given the choice to believe that he died on the cross and forgave my sins and your sins or reject him altogether. They rejected him. Here's an interesting side note. About 70 years later, Caesar Nero is trying to crush all resistance to the Roman Empire. And so he sends his army commander Vespasian into the country to start taking over cities. He goes into almost the first city, maybe the second one he goes into is the city of Gadara, and they are crushed by this army. They have no one there that can stand up. There's there's no, no one left there with any power to stand against the Roman army. Now here's another interesting side note. One of the men, remember in the story, if you read the other Gospels, you find out that one of the men who's um, been freed or delivered from demon possession comes to the Lord and says, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, what I want you to do is go out into your home and tell everyone that you see how good God was to you and the compassion that he had on you. And so it says that this man went, and in Mark you can read that not only did he go home, but he went in as a witness to God and Jesus Christ into the Decapolis, which was the 10 cities in the area, and became a powerful witness. So powerful, in fact, was his witness that later on Jesus comes back into that area and they all know who he is. And Jesus said, rather than to come with me, go and be a witness. And so he was such a powerful witness that he, he witnessed to the entire Decapolis. And they knew who Jesus was when he showed because when he showed up, they were like, there's Jesus, and they all brought the people that they needed healing for. Now it says, look at verse 1 of chapter 9. He got back into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. He gets back in the boat. That makes me smile because Jesus is like, all right, guys, come on, let's get back in the boat. And they get back in, and these guys are still wet, still wet from the storm that had been washing over the boat, still wet from the storm that they thought they were going to perish. And even though Jesus was sitting, sleeping in the back, still dripping wet, I'm wondering if some of them thought, you know what, Jesus, you go ahead, you get in the we're going to walk. We'll meet you around the other side. We'll, we'll meet you when you get back. Because they all got into the boat and went back over. I, I like that because you know what that says to me? That Jesus gave them a second chance to believe. Like their faith was really tested in that boat. They were like, you know, Jesus, we're perishing. Do you not even care? And then he stands up and he says, why, why do you have such little faith? Why have you become so dull to the hearing of my voice that you're afraid when I said, let's go over to the other side? Then he stands up and he says, peace be still. And the waves and the water still are calm. And they're like, whoa. Jesus now says, you know what, guys? Let's get in the boat and do it all over again. And these guys, instead of walking away, <laughs> say, we'll meet you. We're going to stay on dry land. They get a second chance. And they get back in the boat. Aren't you glad that he does that? Amen. Aren't you glad for second chances? Amen. Third chances, fourth chances. How many of you needed more than sec- a second chance? <laughs> How many of you are thankful for second chances regularly? He does that because he loves us. 
It says in verse two, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, for your sins are forgiven you. Now, there's a lot here, actually. Jesus says to, it says here that Jesus saw their faith. He saw the faith of his friends, the friends of the paralytic man that had brought him. These guys got together and they said, it is imperative that we get this guy to Jesus. And they pick him up and they take him to Jesus and Jesus saw their faith. Think of the obstacles that these guys had to overcome. It doesn't say here in Matthew, because Matthew's not such a great, I mean, in the chosen, he's writing everything down. He doesn't mention that this is the same guy that they broke through the roof to bring before Jesus because to him, he's just like, well, it was more, it's more about, you know, their faith and Jesus. And, but this is the same guy. Think of the obstacles they had to overcome. Did this guy even want to come? Guess what? He didn't have a choice. They're like, you're coming. You're going, you're going to Jesus. And he's a paralytic. He's lying on a bed. Take care of him. Think about all they had to overcome because they said it is imperative that we get our friend to Jesus because Jesus will change his life. And so do we go about that the same way? Some of you do. I know some of you do. Some of you are about that. I'm getting my friend to church so he can be introduced to Jesus. I'm going to sit with my friend and I'm going to talk to them about my relationship with Jesus Christ. And so maybe they'll want that too. And Jesus sees their faith. Now here's the thing. He sees their faith, but he directly addresses the man himself. Do you see that? He says, he saw the faith of his friends who brought him, but he directs his attention and his comments to the man. Have you ever come to church at the invitation or even the pleading of a friend or a family member? Like you didn't really want to go, but they just won't let up. They're just like, you want to go to church this Sunday? No, I don't really want to. All right, next Sunday. You want to go to church with me this Sunday? I, I, I don't know. One of these days. One of these days I'm going to go. Next week, hey, why don't you come to church with me? Fine. If it will just shut you up, I will go to church with you. And then you get there, and you sit there, and you're like listening to the message, and it seems like I'm preaching directly at you the entire morning. And you're thinking, man, did my friend tell this guy something about me? Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> First of all, that is almost never the case. It's almost never the case that someone comes to me and tells me my friend is coming and here's all his issues and this is what he needs help with. <laughs> but if you're sitting there and it feels like I am preaching right at you, that's because Jesus is doing exactly what we're reading about right here. It was the faith of his friends that brought him to Jesus, but Jesus is, is speaking directly to this man and his greatest need, if you feel like I'm, I'm targeting you, it's because Jesus is speaking to you and to your greatest need. And by the way, your greatest need is the same as the man in this passage. We'll get to it. Well, they bring this man and they set him before Jesus. And imagine, this is a guy, there's a big crowd around Jesus and they, they get in and, and they are able to put this man um, before Jesus. And I imagine him lying on the ground. He's on some kind of a pallet. Perhaps he's ashamed to even look up. 
surrounded by onlookers who probably some of them are looking at him and judging him right at that very moment. Maybe he's even afraid that Jesus is going to rebuke him for coming to him in this way, disrupting his meeting, disrupting what he was saying to them, maybe too ashamed to even look up at him. But Jesus does not stand on ceremony. Jesus reaches down and he says, son. I imagine at this moment when Jesus says, son, this man is finally able to lift his eyes and look into the face of Jesus And Jesus says, be of good cheer. It says, take courage. He says, don't worry about all of these people around you who may or may not be looking at you. Fix your gaze upon my face. See the compassion in my eyes. Jesus says to him, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Although this man was obviously paralyzed, Jesus addressed his greatest need, his need of forgiveness of sin. Look at verse three. And at at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. The Pharisees hear what Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, This man blasphemes. Hey, this may surprise you. They're right. If Jesus was only a man, as they believe him to be, if Jesus was only a man, then for him to say your sins are forgiven was blasphemy. But he's not only a man, and so they're wrong. And Jesus knows this, and he's going to try to show them this. He says, <clears throat> he says to them, why do you think evil in your hearts? But is it easier to say your sins are forgiven to you or, or to say arise and walk? And really what he's saying is, it's easier to say Your sins are forgiven because you don't know whether I did it or not. But if I show you something outwardly, something physical, you can then not deny it, then you know what I said before is also true. Here's a question, though, and this really struck me this week. Would Jesus have physically healed this man if the doubts of his authority to forgive sin had not been present? Would he have physically healed the paralytic man if the Pharisees had not doubted his authority to forgive sin? Well, ask yourself this question. Why did Jesus come? To die for our sin. Not to heal our sicknesses, but because he is full of compassion, he also sometimes does that too. But there is probably additional purpose, like a testimony, that will lead to someone else believing in Jesus. Do you understand? He says, I'm addressing this man's greatest need, which is his forgiveness of sins. 
but as a testimony to you who doubt my authority, I will do a healing as well. And maybe that will lead you to believe in me also. We get confused in thinking the reason Jesus is here is to heal all sickness. Jesus says, I've come to bring the sinner to repentance. I may also heal. But when I do it, it's probably more than just to heal your body or to give you relief. It is also to show someone else or act as a testimony to bring someone else to the realization, to the belief that he died for your sins. In this example, it was faith that led to the forgiveness of sins. It was others' doubt that prompted him to physically heal. Now, in verse four, he addresses the Pharisees. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus asks them only what he could know, the condition of someone else's heart. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? You understand, they're not, conf they're not confused they're threatened. They're threatened by the fact of who he might be. And Jesus identifies their thoughts, not as concern, but as evil. Yet, even to these men, he gives the opportunity to witness his power and authority that they might also believe. That's mercy. Thank you, Lord. He says to this paralytic man, now he turns his attention back to them, and he says, uh, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Just like that. Arise. How many of you have had uh, surgery of some kind on your body, a shoulder, a leg, a knee, a hip, something like that? No one, oh, okay, actually, there's a couple, okay. Phew, I thought, man, this example's gonna fall flat. After you have some kind of surgery, what's involved directly after that? PT, physical therapy. You got to go in and you got to be like, <laughs> you know, we're going to see in this case, Jesus skips the whole physical therapy part. He just says, oh, you've been paralyzed for, I don't know, maybe since birth, but for a really long time, get up. Oh, and pick up your bed, pick up after yourself and go home. And you see what it says? Verse seven, let's all look at that. And he rose and departed to his house. So he not, had been paralyzed, lying on a mat, had to be carried in by his friends. Jesus says, arise, take up your mat. And the man just gets up. No physical therapy. No time at the gym. Sorry, Brian. Maybe he went later. <laughs> Amazing. Complete healing. Isn't that cool? Jesus says these things. Arise. He says to the man, do what was impossible for you just moments ago. Instant healing. Jesus reminds us that what is impossible for man is impossible with God. Hey, I know that's impossible for you to get up, but because I'm saying it to you and doing it, get up, arise. Then he says, take up your bed. Show those watching that you have been completely healed. And he does this also, I believe, to show this man that the thing that he was most dependent on, he now is in power over. 
because Jesus said so. (laughs) Maybe you're not paralyzed lying on a mat, really, but maybe you're paralyzed in another way. And Jesus says there's healing from that. There's forgiveness of that. In fact, that you can take that thing up now, the thing that had power over you, now you have power over it because Jesus said so. Then he says, go to your house. Do you understand that this healing would now also be a blessing to his household where he had been a burden for so long? Jesus flips the script right here where this man had been a burden he said, now you will be a blessing. That's so like him to do that. Now it says, look at the reaction of everyone watching. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. They see this and they're like, wow, God, you're amazing. That's the exact kind of testimony that Jesus is looking for, isn't it? That men and women's hearts would be turned to God. Now, verse 9. This is very, so it's a little bit of a shift. It's a different, a little bit of a shift in the story. Remember, Matthew, this is Matthew's account. Matthew now is talking and he says, As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. There's Matthew. We've already talked about Matthew. He's the tax collector. He's the Jewish tax collector, which means he was born and raised a Jew, but at some point decided that he was going to be a tax collector for the Roman government, which would make him despised by his own people, including his family. Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. Something that struck me this week as I read this, remember, Matthew is writing this. Matthew is such a humble guy that he gives himself one verse for the being called to, to follow Christ. One verse. Jesus passed from there, and he saw a man named Matthew. You know what I love about this? <laughs> Many things. He says he saw a man, not a tax collector, not a publican, not a despised person. He saw a man. Jesus saw a man. Jesus sees a man. He sees a woman. He sees a child. He doesn't see a tax collector. He doesn't see a drunk. He doesn't see a liar. He doesn't see whatever, whatever label you've given yourself or other people have given you. He sees a man or a woman. Matthew writes that he saw a man. Everyone else saw a tax collector that they hated. Jesus saw a man. Jesus says, follow me. It's a simple message. Follow me. It means accompany me. Come with me. Literally in the Greek, it means accompany me. Let me be your teacher. It strikes me that Jesus says, follow me. Just as Jesus' words to the paralytic man, arise and walk, seemed impossible to that man, so the words to a despised tax collector, follow me, must have seemed. But the man, the paralytic man, then got up because with God, all things are possible. We see that Matthew arose and followed him. Pastor, you don't know 
what it means for me to become a Christian in my family or with my friends or at my job. You don't know what I will have to leave behind, what it will cost me. It's impossible. And yet, the one who makes the impossible possible is saying to you right now, follow me. You know, Matthew didn't know how this was going to work out. But he believed, and that was enough. Did you know that in Mark and Luke's gospel accounts, they actually call him Levi, right? Levi. I happen to think that probably Levi was the name that he was born with, that he was given. In fact, because he was a Jew, probably indicates that he might have been from the tribe of Levi, I also believe that he, for a long time, as would have been the case for many Jewish boys, were brought up in the knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament. One of the reasons I believe this is because Matthew quotes from or mentions the Old Testament in his gospel 99 times, three times more than all of the other gospels combined. This was a guy that knew the Old Testament, I believe, from what I see. So, what would have made a person like Levi, brought up with an understanding of the Old Testament, leave that to go into a job like tax collector where he would be not considered Jewish anymore? The money alone, you think? You think it was the money only? It might have had something to do with it, see? But here's the thing. Another word that Matthew uses more than anywhere else in the Bible is hypocrite. I honestly believe that Matthew grew up seeing hypocrisy in the church, and it drove him away. Sadly, I think that still happens a lot. People see other people being hypocrites in the church, maybe even standing right here, and they're like, I don't want anything to do with this. And in that, that means I don't want anything to do with God or Jesus or religion, and they walk. I hear from people, I actually have heard it very recently, someone say, um, I don't believe in organized religion. So I always say, how about disorganized religion? (laughs) (laughs) but my point is when I talk to them is look you're looking at people who are flawed and imperfect they're going to make mistakes they're going to make bad decisions but that doesn't mean that you walk away from Jesus Matthew Levi I believe saw such hypocrisy that he walked away and then was lured into being a tax collector drawn by the money. Because I hope, I hope that if you're here and you've been hurt before in the church or you've really been following some guy and all of a sudden you find out that he's a hypocrite and you're like, oh, I'm done with church. I would remind you that we as Christians, we don't follow men or women. We follow Christ. Jesus didn't say to Matthew, follow these guys. He said, follow me. We follow him. We gather together to walk through the word, to sing, to pray. But you don't follow me. 
you follow Christ. I will probably let you down in some way by the end of this message. (laughs) Or in some way at some point. I hope it's not in a way that you would look at me and say, oh, this whole church is bad and I'm out of here. I pray against that in myself all the time, so you know. But you don't follow me, you follow Jesus Christ. Follow me, he says. So then it says, now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Matthew's so humble, he won't even tell you that he actually did have a big feast at his house for Jesus right after. This is where he's at, the house. He just says, well, yeah, you know, he said to this man, follow me, and he did. Um, and then he had a, a, it was at dinner at a house. But it's Matthew's house that he sat at the table that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. This is very interesting. Matthew says, you know what? This guy, this guy changed my life. If he could do it for me, he could do it for the other people that I know that are just like me. And he throws a big dinner party, and he invites the people that he knows, probably the only people that would hang out with him. The other tax collectors and sinners. I think it's interesting that they break it off. It's like tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> You're either one or the other, apparently. And it says, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, this is very interesting. First of all, I don't think the Pharisees were invited to dinner. Yet they're there. <laughs> they would never go into the house of a Gentile or a sinner or a publican or a tax collector. They would never go in. So they are outside of the house. They must have followed to see what was going on. They're outside the house. And it says that they said to his disciples, why does your tax collector, or excuse me, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know what struck me? Is that if they're outside the house, while the dinner's going on, and they're speaking to the disciples, the disciples must also be outside the house unless they're like peeking the wind, like, hey, come over here, which I don't think, I think that his disciples are there too. And maybe they're not in because all of a sudden they're, they've been raised their whole life. You don't go into a Gentile's house, you'll be defiled. You don't, you don't associate with, with tax collectors and sinners. And so at least there are some disciples who I believe are standing outside the house unsure of whether they're supposed to go in or not. So these Pharisees come and they question Jesus's actions. They question the the disciples. It says, when Jesus heard, when he heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says to the Pharisees this, I came for the purpose of saving those who believe they need to be saved, not hanging out with those who don't think they need saving. He says, if I am the one who can save them, if I am the one who came for, he says, to heal those, because he uses that analogy, to the, if I'm the doctor who can heal, I'm not going to be hanging out with healthy people. I'm going to be where the sick people are. I love when he says, but go and learn this. <laughs> go and learn what this means. This is actually a phrase that rabbis and Pharisees would tell other people 
When they would come with questions or they wanted to speak to them about some uh, action or transgression, they would say, go and learn what this means. And then they would quote them scripture. And so then Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. Jesus says, uh, uh, we see this. We see the Pharisees are more concerned with a strict adherence to the law, holding everybody's feet to the fire. But Jesus quotes to them, Hosea 6.6. He tells them to go and learn what this means. And that phrase actually means, don't just go and look up the words, go and learn what these words mean, but not just what they mean, go and learn what these words mean to you. What is the application of these words to you in your life? How will this, go and learn how these words will change your life. Then he quotes Hosea 6.6. The entire book of Hosea is about God's desire and relentless pursuit of restoration of relationship, not strict adherence to the law. They're saying, well, you're, not, you're not allowed to sit with sinners and with tax collectors. And Jesus was like, I'm trying to restore these people in relationship to their creator. I'm not concerned about strict adherence to the rules Go and learn what this means for yourself. He says, I came to call sinners to repentance. Think about this. If sin had not entered the world, Jesus would not have had to come. Did you ever think about that? If the first Adam had continued on in righteousness then there would not have been a need for the second Adam to come, Jesus. But it did. It did enter the world. Sin entered the world and passed on to all of us. So then there was a need for the second Adam, for Jesus to come and to call all of us to repentance. Here's an interesting thing to consider as we go on. You'll see this. When there was an issue concerning Jesus, the disciples were questioned. When there arises an issue with the disciples, Jesus is questioned. Do you see? That is how discord is sown in the church. I have a, I have a problem with this person. I'm going to talk to this guy about it. Well, I have a question with this guy. Now I'm going to go and talk to this person about it. Sowing discord. Do you know how much God hates those who sow discord? It says it. These six things I hate, yet there are seven. A lying tongue those who run to evil. He says, those who sow discord. He hates that. Well, they're driven by we trying to wreck this guy, not really understand this guy. This, in verse 14, it says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do, we have the, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? This is, very, this is very interesting to me, okay? The disciples come to uh, Jesus. I actually think that the Pharisees put them up to this because they're saying, well, we fast, and the Pharisees, they fast. I'm like, we all fast often. How come your, your disciples don't, don't fast? Now, first of all, this is interesting because what had Jesus finished telling everybody on the Sermon on the Mount? When you fast, don't let anybody know that you're fasting, 
They didn't maybe realize that Jesus had told his disciples, don't let anybody know if you're fasting. But they weren't at this moment. But here's the thing. They come to Jesus and they say, "Um, we fast all the time. Your disciples, they never fast. Really? Are you watching them every single second? Are you with them every single moment of the day, every single day for the, all the time that you could honestly say they don't fast? See, they were like, well, we have this much information. We obviously know it all. Yeah, and we were like, oh, those silly disciples. Look at them. They're such hypocrites. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. We get this much information about any situation, and we're like, I obviously know everything there is to know. Now I will make a judgment. All the time we do this. There's a story. You've heard this before. There are these guys, these five blind guys in a village, and, and uh, the, someone brings in an elephant that they've never seen or known anything about. And they're like, well, we should go and figure out what this is. Let's feel it because we have you know, a heightened sense of, of touch. So we can go in and identify this. And each one ends up at a different part of the elephant. And the, and the first guy grabs a hold of the trunk. And he's like, well, obviously this is a great big snake. And another one goes and he grabs a hold of one of the legs. And he's like, no, no, this, it's, it's obviously a tree. Another one grabs the ear and he's like, no, it's like, it, it's, it's a big fan. And one grabs the tail, one, two, three. Oh, however many, grabs the tail, and he's like, no, you're all wrong. It's a rope. All of them had this much information, but felt equipped enough to say, I know what it is. You're all wrong. I know what it is. The disciples of John come to him and say, your disciples never fast. We fast all the time. They never fast. They don't know. How could they possibly know? We do the same thing. I just, I'm just cautioning all of us to, to rather than to say, look into someone's moment, even here, even here, you're here, you're here for, you know, four and a half hours. No, I'm sorry. I'm just fooling you. I, that was for the new people. No, you're here for a short period of time, but you might look at somebody and say, well, you know, I, now I see them sitting over there and, oh, they, they use their phone instead of an actual Bible. So now I know everything about them. You know nothing. Don't make a judgment like that. This is what they're doing. Now, actually, what Jesus is going to come back, he's not actually going to rebuke them. He's just going to kind of justify the disciples and why they're doing what they're doing. Jesus says to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will, then they will fast. You know, I was just at a wedding last weekend. Weddings are fun. You know, it's celebratory. You're there, the bride is there, the groom is there, you're all there, you're having fun, you're, you're dancing the chicken dance, you're doing all those things, you're, you're having a good time. No one's at a wedding, I hope no one's at a wedding being like, oh, this is a sad occasion, we should look down and forlorn. No, you're celebrating with them. At some point, they're not going to be there, and then you can be like, oh, I really miss them, I, I never get to see them anymore, but that's for later. When the bride and the groom are there, you're happy, you're celebrating. That's what he's saying. This is the example he's using. I'm here now with them. It's time for them to not be fasting, but to be uh, joyful. But there will come a time, he, he kind of forewarns them, there is going to come a time when I'm not going to be here. And then there will be a time for fasting. But then Jesus says, no one puts an un 
Uh, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old skins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus says something very profound here. He says that I did not come to patch up something old, but to bring something new. I'm not here to repair the old institutions of Judaism, but to institute a new covenant that would bring Jew and Gentile together. When I read this this week, I heard Jesus say to me, I didn't come to repair your life. I came to redeem it and to make you something new, a new creation, he says. There is danger in thinking that you will take your life and add Jesus to it. That's the example he's talking about. You cannot take something new and add it to something old. You need the new. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to repair your old life. I came to redeem your life on the cross. And that is what he did. Then he says, do you believe that? And now it's on us. Do you believe it or do you not? There's so much more that I'm just going to stop for today. Because it's communion also. And I want to save all this other stuff about Jairus and the woman and all this other things for next week. Because it's just that good. Well, let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, I thank you so much this morning for this time together in your word and what you've shown us, Lord. Uh, I pray, Lord, that even in our unbelief, we would believe, Lord, that we would hold to you, Lord, that we would be directed by you, Lord, in those times that we feel like something in our life has power over us, Lord, that we would see that you've given us the power to be in over it, Lord, that we would accept your forgiveness, we would accept your healing, Lord, that we would always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us to anyone that asks. Lord, thank you so much for your death on the cross, Lord. I'm sorry that you had to die for my sin, but thank you for doing it. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.